Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So we're in 1 Corinthians 8. Show of hands, how are we doing, guys? Anyone get a chance to read 1 Corinthians 8 this week? A few of us? Great. Awesome. How many of you were confused by it? Oh, okay. Maybe then we should switch places. Okay. You know, it's an interesting chapter for sure, right? So today we're going to learn a principle that's designed to help us as a church act like Jesus towards each other. Paul's applying this principle to the cultural problem that the Corinthians were facing in their day. And I hope that we're going to be able to see how this principle we're going to learn about certainly applies still to our lives today here at CFC in 2021. So we're just going to dive right in here, starting with verse 1 from 1 Corinthians 8. It says this, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So Paul is turning to another question that the Corinthians have asked him. Whenever he says now about and then talks about something, he's he's segueing into a new conversation. So he says now about food sacrificed to idols. So obviously the people from Corinth had asked some questions about this. They were wondering if they were allowed to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol. Now, why were they wondering about this? Because animal sacrifices wasn't just a Jewish practice. You know, for anyone who's grown up in church, we've heard about the sacrifices made on the altar at the temple. We've heard about these things from the Old Testament and on this kind of practice that the Jewish people were given. But there were many other cultures at the time who also followed a similar practice, but they did not do it to God. They did it to their own deity, and often it was to an idol, a man-made image, right? So... When we used to live in Winnipeg, for example, this is kind of funny. Karen told me this one just the other day. When we, when we used to live in Winnipeg, Karen and her mom and her sister, they would go to a nail salon every so often just for a little girl's outing. And at this nail salon, there were um, East Asian people who were running it, and they had a little statue of Buddha in a corner. And one day, Karen came in, and there was an orange sitting in front of little Buddha, right? And then the next day she came in, or the next time she came in, there was a bowl of food sitting in front of Buddha. So this is still a practice that some people observe today. They offer food sacrifices to idols because they believe that it appeases their God in one way or another. So even though this is something that is quite foreign to most of us, it still is something that actually would speak into people's lives even today. So here we go. We're going to figure this out. Back to the Corinthians here. Some of the people who had recently accepted Christ and become a part of this church in Corinth, they were worrying about violating their new faith if they ate meat without knowing whether it had been sacrificed to an idol or not. So Paul acknowledges that he and the Corinthians know something about this subject. But here's the principle that Paul wants us to learn first. And this is going to apply to the rest of the passage. The principle is this. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. In other words, living purely by knowledge puffs us up, making us somewhat conceited or prideful in our hearts. Because if all we do is operate on what we know and not on love... It's, it's a prideful situation. We're, we're basing our, our understanding, our living, our thinking, our feeling on our knowledge, what we hold to be true. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm looking for some interaction this morning here. What, do you think that a person with a prideful heart is a benefit to Jesus' church? Why or why not? 
Anyone want to take a shot at this? I'll ask it again. I know I was, I was speaking way too fast, right? Is a person with a prideful heart a benefit to Jesus' church? Why or why not? I don't believe so. You don't believe so? Okay. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Karen said that a person with a prideful heart has two things working against them. They're not teachable and they're not humble. And if those are two things working against you, that means that you're probably not going to be able to hear from the Lord when he is trying to teach you something. I would agree with that for sure. So I think that's a great answer. So good that we're just going to keep moving on here. Because Paul then says that's the thing that puffs us up. That's what makes us non-beneficial to one another. But then Paul completes this thought, but he says, but... Love builds others up. So then my next question, and someone else can try answering this if you like, what about a heart that is full of love? Is a heart like that, a person who has love as their first instinct, is that beneficial to Jesus' church? Why or why not? Yeah. Does, does pride come from Jesus? Exactly, Judy. You nailed it. You, you have found out what the secret is here. The reason why love is so valuable to a church is because Jesus is love, right? We are something that Jesus is. And what, I mean, it's Jesus' church after all, so why wouldn't we try to emulate him in, in all ways? Thank you, Judy. Appreciate that a lot. So there's, there's a clear difference in who we are when we act based on what we know versus acting based on our love for other people. In verses 2 and 3, Paul takes this thought a step further to emphasize love as being superior to knowledge in the life of a Christian. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to, but whoever loves God is known by God. Okay. So do we know everything perfectly right now in our life here on earth? Raise your hand if you have life perfectly figured out. Okay, good. None of us know everything. Not a chance, right? In fact, in, uh, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul says very plainly, now I, or we, now we know in part. So if we, don't, if we know in part, it doesn't mean that we know everything completely or fully. Do you understand what I'm saying? So right now, in this life that we live, we have a partial knowledge, not a complete knowledge. But when Jesus is going to come back and we're going to see him face to face, only at that time will we know fully. So only when we're in the presence of Jesus and able to receive from him fully without our sin getting in the way, that's when things are going to be complete. That's chapter 13 says, when completeness comes, or when we see him face to face, that's when the knowledge that some people boast about, they get prideful about, that's when knowledge is actually completed. Right now it's all in part. It's not full yet. So we can't boast about these things. But when love is our calling card, when love is what we're known for, and live by when our hearts are fueled by love for God rather than the knowledge that we think we have about God, that's when we're told that we're known by God. 
Isn't that precious? I mean, I, I, I am humbled and blown away and I feel so small when I think about the fact that I, we, can be known by God. I mean, God's infinite, right? He was there before the world began. Yet at the same time, if we love him, we can be known by him. Right here, we're learning that to be known by God means that we need to love him as well. God recognizes and approves of people who love him, not those who know facts about God. A lot of people can store up a lot of knowledge. There are a lot of scholarly men and women who know the Bible far better than any of us do, but they do not love God. And that's what sets them apart. See, love is the, is the big deciding factor. It comes back to the heart once again, doesn't it? We've talked about this often. Everything that we do in the Christian life is about our heart and if we love Jesus or not. Chapter 13, I can't wait to get there in 1 Corinthians. It has a lot to say about this. And it's, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's our love for God, not our knowledge of God, that brings us into close relationship with him. So now that Paul has spoken to the superiority of love over knowledge, he then applies it to the question that the Corinthians asked him about food sacrifice to idols. Remember, once again, many of these Corinthians were new believers, and they were still learning what it meant to walk in freedom from their old lifestyle, and they, that, and let, that likely contained some form of idol worship before they met Jesus. Okay, so verse four, here's, here's a little bit more explanation. So then, now that we know this principle about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul cuts to the chase here, okay? He says, guys, we're talking about idols and the, and the food that's been sacrificed to them. I want you to know an idol is nothing at all. Idols are meaningless. Idols are not alive. They are man-made. They have no power. Idols are not gods. In this world we live in, there aren't a multitude of gods to choose from, friends. There is only one God, and that's the Lord. Let's say it together. There is only one God. There is only one God. That is an important truth. So many people think, well, which God should I serve? And then they start listing them off. And if I hear them say that, I say, well, I only heard one that I recognize because there is only one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is God. And this is an idea that has been so enforced all throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Basically, they're saying, there is the one and only God. Isaiah 43.10, Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. What, is, what a statement that is, right? Isaiah 44.6, This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. And finally, Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Isn't it reassuring when we sit here together as, as worshipers and we say, yeah, I think we, we've made the right choice. I think, you know, we've made the right selection in the God that we're choosing. Actually, it wasn't a choice. It was either you serve God or you serve yourself. There is nothing else. 
There is nothing else besides the Lord our God. Praise him for that. I love that. So even if someone calls something a God or a Lord, that doesn't make it divine, now does it? If the one true God is the Father who created everything, and the only true Lord is Jesus Christ who redeemed all of us so that we could come to know the Father through him, then we're reminded once again that the gospel message is our foundation for truth. So many times we hear the good news about Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died for you. He saved you. You can be forgiven for your sins. And we say, that's great. And now what? We forget about that and we go on with life making other decisions. But that foundational decision is what makes every other decision for us in our lives as well. When, there, when, we, when we know that there's only one God, then we realize, oh, this brings clarity to every other part of my life. I love that about this. In verses 4 to 6, Paul is saying, because there is one God, we don't need to be concerned about eating food sacrificed to idols, because an idol is nothing. It's a piece of wood, stone, metal, or clay made by human hands. It's completely powerless. This understanding, this knowledge is good, isn't it? Yes, it is. But, there's always a but. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Okay, so Paul has laid out the truth for us that an idol is nothing, but then says not everyone knows this yet. See, not everyone has the same level or, or degree of knowledge. We're all coming at this from past experiences that are going to change the way that we come to Jesus. There is only one Jesus. There's one way to, to receive him and to believe in him. But we all have these things that kind of hang on. It's the baggage that we come with. And sometimes that allows us to embrace Jesus quicker. And sometimes that allows us to embrace Jesus slower. We just have to be gracious because love builds each other up in those moments, right? Where if it's all about knowledge, it's like, oh, why would you think that way? That's what puffs us up. Okay, so some of these new believers, they were still used to acknowledging idols as gods. That was the lifestyle that they walked away from. And because of that, they think that it's a bad idea to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. Paul says that people who think this way have a weak conscience. Now that sounds maybe a little insulting if we're not really careful about what that means. So we need to ask the question, well, what does Paul mean by that? Our conscience is our internal moral compass, right? Our conscience tells us what is right and what is wrong. And that's why people say things like, listen to your conscience. Or when we feel like we're doing things well, we can say like, I'm operating with a clean conscience. Or if I know that I'm doing something wrong, I'm operating with a guilty conscience. Our conscience is, is what tells us what's right or wrong. So when Paul says that these people who think about eating meat sacrificed to idols have a weak conscience, he means that they are lacking in the ability to make an accurate decision about what is truly right and truly wrong. On top of that, if these believers were to eat food sacrificed to an idol, their consciences would be defiled, which means that they'd feel guilt and shame because of what they have eaten. Because in their mind, they think that it's a sin against God. So now that we have the truth, and, but now we also have this understanding that there's two different groups here, we see that one group thinks that eating meat sacrificed to idols shouldn't, be, shouldn't happen. And then we see Paul and some other believers at this church who know that idols are nothing. And in fact, food can't change our hearts. 
Verse 8 even said, but food does not bring us near to God. In other words, eat food or don't eat food, there, there is no spiritual effect. That's what Paul's trying to teach these people and us today. To add to what Paul is teaching here, we can read what Jesus himself said in Mark 7, verse 18 and 19. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. Relationship with God, friends, is a heart issue. It's not a stomach issue. Sometimes we're so worried about protocol and policy and doing things a certain way that we forget about the heart and we become, huh, what was that group again? Oh, yeah, the Pharisees. They didn't care about the heart at all. They cared about the exterior and everything that mattered to impress other people and to follow things that they set up for themselves as a rule that was not from God. Relationship with God is a heart issue. We know the truth, but nonetheless, in this Corinthian church, there are two schools of thought. You know, it it kind of occurred to me yesterday as I was thinking about this again, and I asked this question to myself, were the people who avoided meat sacrificed to idols because they thought it was a sin to eat it? Were they just a bunch of idiots? Like, were they just a bunch of misinformed fools who had no idea what it meant to walk with Jesus? I don't think so. Because if you look at their heart motive in what they were doing, they thought that they were honoring the Lord by avoiding, by avoiding this certain kind of food, right? And actually, the more I thought about it, the more I began to think, like, it's beautiful what they were doing. Misinformed, yeah, because it wasn't necessary. It wasn't a requirement from God. But in their heart, they said, I don't want to do this because I think this would be an offense to this God that I love and serve. I think that's okay, to acknowledge that and to say that there's a lot of value in someone who thinks that way, right? That's a good heart for Jesus. So what is this Corinthian church supposed to do, though? How should, how should they proceed when there's two different levels of knowledge or understanding? Paul speaks directly to the ones who know the truth, that idols are nothing. He says to them in verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So what Paul means here is, even though you know the truth, that you have the right to eat anything you want, don't be insensitive to others who don't understand this yet. Be considerate of where they are in their knowledge. You maybe got a head start on them. Just go easy on them, okay? If you act insensitive or inconsiderately towards them, you're a stumbling block to them, which means you are tempting them to sin. Whoa, wait a minute. So if if eating food sacrificed to an idol is not a sin based on the knowledge that Paul is sharing with us, but now here he is saying, if you eat it, knowing that these people think it's a sin, you're causing them to sin. How does that even work? Right? Like that's where it kind of gets confusing. It's not a sin. Yet at the same time, if you do it, you're making them tempted to sin. We need to understand this here. Okay. Verse 10 gives the clarification 10 and 11. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Man, what a humbling thought. Jesus cares about my heart. He cares about your heart. He cares about the next person's heart. And he cares even how we affect the heart of the person next to us. 
Paul is saying that even in our knowledge, if we're 100% right, we are still wrong if we lack love in our actions for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If our knowledge and spiritual maturity cause us to act in a way that encourages a fellow believer to do something that is sinful in their eyes, not even in ours, our knowledge has caused them to suffer spiritually. Paul, just what a humbling thought, right? I love how the message paraphrase of the Bible puts this, this lesson. It says, Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for them? <laughs> That's a good thought. You know, when I was 20 years old, I was working in a factory in Winkler. We were, it was a factory that manufactured mobile homes. And Winkler is a city that has many Christians, many Christians that come from many churches. So naturally, in our factory of hundreds of workers, there were several different churches represented. I enjoyed listening to Christian rock music in those days, as I still do now. And evidently, some of my coworkers from another church heard the music that I was playing in, on my, in my car as I drove up to work each day. During a lunch break, one of them asked to speak to me, and I wasn't really sure what he wanted. We didn't work in the same part of the factory, but nonetheless, he called me over. And he asked me, hey, Jeff, uh, what kind of music do you like listening to? Like, what kind of bands? So I started to name them, and they're all Christian bands. White Cross, Striper, Guardian, Rez, Bride. And in all seriousness, he looked at me and he says, Jeff, uh, all of those bands have drums in them, don't they? And he's slightly confused. I said, yeah. And then he told me, no lie, he told me, unless I changed the music I was listening to, I was going to hell. Now, very confused, I asked why he thought that. And he told me that he was at a conference where there was uh, an African Christian who came to speak. The speaker told everyone at the conference that the drumming he heard in North American churches reminded him of the tribal drumming that he heard in Africa. And since tribal drumming was not for God, he told everyone that drumming in their churches wasn't for God either. Quite a reach, right? Like, there's no statement whatsoever that would support that in Scripture. So let me ask you this. If I listen to music that has drums in it, am I going to hell? No. Let's be real, okay? That's the truth. You can listen to music, and the music that you listen to is not going to give you a spiritual position with God, good or bad. In this moment... This guy from another church, I would say he had a weak conscience. He was given some faulty teaching, and he bought it, hook, line, and sinker. He didn't truly understand right from wrong in this instance. Now, how should I have responded to him? Probably the right thing to do would have been for me to drive out of the parking lot or into the parking lot from work quietly with my windows rolled up and the stereo turned down, right? And you know what? I didn't do that at all because I was young and immature, that day after work, I rolled down all four windows on my vehicle and I played the music louder than I ever had in my life. And it was, which is horrible. That's horrible of me. Verse 12 explains why my response was bad and why the Christians who ate food sacrificed to idols without being considerate about others was also bad. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak consciences, or conscience, you sin against Christ. Man, is that not an arrow to the heart, right? So here's the thing. The way that we carry on in front of other Christians 
if we do something that violates their consciences and we know that it does, we're sinning against Jesus himself. So how does that work? How does that connection happen? If I sin against Donovan or if I sin against Kent or Brent, if I sin against these guys, how is it that I'm sinning against Jesus? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 lets us in uh, a little bit more on these details. This verse says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Okay, so if through knowledge, I feel that it is my right to do whatever I know is acceptable to God, but I know that it causes someone else to stumble, yet I do it anyway. I sin against Christ because I don't show love for Christ's people. When each of us put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're not only united with him. It's not just a Jeff and Jesus relationship, but we're also brought into the family of God, the body of Christ. Each one of us is united to God, and whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, we are united to each other. Every person in this room, every person on planet Earth that confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So when we sin against each other by doing what we feel we have the right to do and not considering the repercussions that our actions could have on someone else's spirit, that's how we sin against Christ himself. We look out for someone's conscience by loving them not by bulldozing them with our knowledge. So in this spirit of love for others, Paul finishes this chapter with an incredible statement. Verse 13, Therefore, in light of everything that we've learned, in light of everything that we've heard this morning, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Isn't that beautiful? Like that's the selfless, loving heart that Christ has for us and that we are supposed to replicate for others. Life as a Christian for sure is knowing the truth and living in the truth. It's about freedom from things that aren't supposed to hold us back anymore. But if there is truth without love, it's actually a very dangerous thing. Consideration for others, the well-being of others can only be shown with love. Paul puts aside what he knows he has freedom to do in order to keep others with a weak conscience from stumbling in their faith. He cares more about how they relate to Jesus than how he relates to Jesus in that moment. He gives them the benefit and, and takes it away from himself. It's an act of sacrifice for him out of love for the people around him. I was with a group of Christian friends uh, quite a while ago. And all of us were from different churches. We, were got, we got together and, and the conversation just kind of turned towards communion, which was kind of interesting. We talked about the beauty of sharing communion together with others who believe and, and how Jesus observed this sacrament with his disciples. We were eating some snacks during this conversation and, and just moved by the moment that we were in. I, I spoke up and I said, man, I just... Would you guys want to take communion just with what we have right here, right now? I just feel so close uh, to you, and I would love to do that. What, what do you think? And two of them immediately said, yeah, let's do that. That would be beautiful. And one guy said, I'd rather not. Which kind of caught us all by surprise. He said that communion had to be taken only with bread and only with grape juice, not with snacks that we were eating, muffins and, and orange juice. 
He said that if we did that, he believed that we would be violating the scriptures and it would be sinful. Now, for me, I believe that the communion food, what it symbolizes is far greater than the food itself. It's more important to remember Christ than to remember, you know, exactly what kind of bread and drink they were using. The heart for Jesus, I believe, is what's really important to him during communion, not necessarily the elements. But in that moment, the three of us who were in agreement, yeah, we should take communion together. We had a choice to make, right? Because one guy expressed to us, he said that if we do that, he believes it would be a violation of the scriptures. What would that do to him if we just said, well, that's your, that's your problem, not ours. We're going to do this. Would we have perhaps tempted him just to not feel left out? And then he would have said, well, yeah, okay, I'll do it. But really in his heart, he would have felt that he would have been sinning against his Lord. The three of us quickly decided not to take communion, even though we believed we totally could. We made our choice out of consideration and love for the one, for even the minority in this moment. And that's the point that I believe that Paul is getting at today. Knowledge is good. God fills our lives with knowledge about him. In fact, we're supposed to grow in knowledge about our God. That's part of becoming spiritually mature. As we become more spiritually mature, our understanding of right and wrong will cause us to look back at things that we used to believe and say, oh, you know, I was close, but it wasn't quite right. Or, oh, man, I was way off back then, right? That's what maturity does. We, we look at how we thought as a child and spoke like a child and acted like a child, and we're like, oh, I don't do that stuff anymore. I've become an adult. But once again, knowledge without love for those who are at a different place than us, those who haven't yet learned the same lessons that we've learned, that kind of knowledge is not good when it is... Um, without love. So love is always the most important response for us to offer to one another as we follow Jesus together. Let's pray. Lord, what a what a good lesson. I love how I love how in your scriptures you you provide us with an example of something that seems out of place for us culturally, yet at the same time the principle is timeless. Thank you for that, first of all. Thank you for writing down this, this lesson through your servant, Paul, so accurately. Thank you for allowing us to, to meditate on it this morning. And I guess my, my heart goes to two things, Jesus. I pray that we would all grow in knowledge. That we would all continue to pursue you, to read and understand your scriptures, to abide with you and allow you into our lives to continue to teach us. We don't want to stay as, as spiritual infants. We want, to, we want to become spiritually mature. But Lord, perhaps even more important than spiritual maturity is love. Thank you, Jesus, that you exemplified love for us so perfectly in your life on this earth. Thank you that you did not act in knowledge and then become judgmental of us, but you acted in knowledge and love. You'd say to people, go and sin no more. And it wasn't because you were condemning them, but you're actually loving them. Say, hey, I have a better way for you. So Jesus, I pray that in our hearts, we would have this kind of love. Would you please build up love in us? I mean, this church is already incredibly loving. 
Karen and I have felt that since the day we, we came here. And I hear that time and time again from new people who come in. They say, like, your church is so friendly. Everyone actually cares about us. And we, we just came here for the first time or the second time. Jesus, that truly is a heart of love that you have given to us. We praise you for that. We acknowledge your goodwill in our, in our hearts. But Lord, we don't want to slow down. We ask for an increase in love. We ask that love would continue to grow and grow in us. Not only a love for you and a love for others, but a love for knowledge, a love for truth, a love for what is right, a love for what is holy and pure, that we may set our eyes on you. Jesus, make this church more mature, but at the same time we ask that love would also be made more and more our calling card. We love you, and thank you for the knowledge that you have given us of you. Amen.